we hear a lot of slogans today uh, about having no limits or, you know, why it's good to have boundless aspirations, uh, limitless possibilities. Uh, so I, I just sort of, you know, picked out some images here uh, that I think express that kind of cultural ethos. Something I think about our cultural e ethos that sort of valorizes indivi unbridled individual choice, uh, sees a maximizing mindset where, you know, more is better, uh, you know, as sort of the default assumption. And so a lot of what I'm doing in this book is challenging those, those kinds of ideas. Uh, but, you know, while I think in some ways uh, this, is, this is a modern thing, this sense of you know, throwing off limits, uh, valorizing individual choice and maximizing our, our preferences. Nevertheless, I think this is an important part of our humanity. I don't see it simply in naked terms. In fact, I think um, just to, to go on here, I, I, um, that it's, it's part of being human that we seek to transcend limits. This is part of our potential for, for human greatness. Part of what we achieve, in fact, what's best in our humanity is through this, this limit transcending feature of human life. So on certain respects, you know, I'll be clear that I, I think it's problematic. Nevertheless, uh, I think it's something important about being human that we seek to, to transcend limits, right? Uh, but at the same time, I think it's problematic insofar as it doesn't bring out what's best in our humanity, but brings out what's worst. It can lead to dehumanization. And so uh, there's, there's a need to think about a uh, place of limits within human life uh, for achieving important human goods and also avoiding certain human evils. So my book, The Virtues of Limits, um, in part is, you know, the, the title has double meaning. It means in one sense, uh, you know, a virtue is something that's excellent, it's good, it has certain benefits. So there are benefits to recognizing limits in human life. Well, also, the, uh, it refers to what I call the limiting virtue. So there's certain virtues, I think, uh, that are particularly concerned with recognizing limits in human life. Now, I do think all of the virtues, my own account of, of the virtues is that the virtues are, are dispositions or modes of proper responsiveness to what's of value in the world. Right. So I developed this idea in, in my book, Virtue and Meaning, that uh, virtues are modes of being properly responsive to, to value. So, for instance, justice responds to, uh, you know, the value of, of, of uh, human beings and their actions gives people their due. Right. And so it seems to be really responsive uh, to, say, claims of human dignity. It's closely related to one of the virtues I'll be discussing, reverence. Uh, but so I, th I think all of the virtues, generosity, courage. We all place constraints in our desires insofar as are things we ought to be concerned about, that we ought to be concerned with cultivating the virtues, because as Aristotle says, this is aiming at a noble kind of life, right? And the noble is, is an evaluative category that makes demands upon our desires and our choices. So in a broad sense, I want to say all the virtues uh, impose limits. But I want to look at these specific virtues as concerned, uh, what I'm calling the limiting virtues, as concerned with limits in a more specific kind of ways. These virtues uh, that I discussed, there's, there's six of them that I discuss. Uh, maybe you might think of other limiting virtues. I think, I think uh, to be sure there are, but these are the ones I focus on as being especially important. They're humility, reverence, moderation, contentment, neighborliness, and loyalty. Uh, and I explore these in, re in relation to four general sort of domains of limits in human life. One that I call existential. So existential limits just have to do with uh, what is, what exists, the, as I call it, the given world, the world as we have it. So uh, there's certain, certain ways we need to be related to the world as we have it. Then there's moral limits. Um, uh, I think in, in one sense of moral just means how we ought to live our lives and all the limits are, are, are moral limits, but in more specific areas that concern moral philosophers where we talk about other regarding concern, issues of character form, formation and so forth, there's a vein of moral limits. Also political limits and lastly, economic limits. So I talk about these. So each of the chapters of my book are structured across these four kinds of limits. And then I look at how these six limiting virtues play out in these different domains. So um, I think in many ways, these virtues uh, have been overlooked in, in contemporary virtue ethics, although um, 
some of them, you know, maybe have been discussed. There's been a few books on loyalty, uh, humility, as I think there's been a resurgence of interest uh, on, on the virtue of, of humility. Reverence, there was a book by Paul Woodruff, uh, you know, uh, about a decade ago on, um, on uh, reverence, renewing a forgotten virtue, uh, which I think is a very interesting book. Um, but for the most part, even where they're discussed, it's not with regard to this general issue of, of the place of limits in human life. An account of the good life structured around the idea of, of limits. Limits have an important uh, integral role to play in how we think about the good life. However, my aim here is not so much as I've sort of already indicated to, you know, uh, to critique virtue ethics here. Uh, I mean, developing a kind of virtue ethic, but I'm more interested in, in um, uh, countering some other prominent approaches namely as autonomy-centered approaches to ethics and consequentialist or maximizing approaches to ethics. When I talk about autonomy-centered approaches, I'm, I'm thinking particularly if, you, if you're familiar with Kant's moral philosophy, particularly descending from Kant, uh, contemporary Kantians who you might call liberal Kantians, who focus a lot on, uh, you know, to respect someone is to respect their, their autonomy, their individual choice. And so you see this a lot in issues of applied ethics. So I teach uh, biomedical ethics uh, pretty regularly and you have these sort of a very autonomy focused uh, uh, perspectives. And so uh, that's one kind of view I'm, I'm combating but also a consequentialist view that, that uh, focuses on maximizing. Okay, so hopefully that, that all makes sense so far. So I will, uh, I'll be going through each of these uh, six kinds of limiting virtues. But I want to set up, um, set this up a, a little further um, by looking at, uh, so I begin the book talking about these two fundamental, what I call two fundamental existential stances um, or orientations towards the given world. So the first of these, uh, is the choosing controlling stance. I should say, by the way, if you're not familiar with, this is a Prometheus here, uh, having stolen fire from, from the Olympian gods. So Prometheus, of, of course, is, is a Titan, a non-Olympian god, but he steals fire and gives it to humanity. So we'll, I'll come back to talk a little bit more about uh, a Promethean posture here. But I, I contrast what I call these two fundamental existential stances, which I think... Um, the goal is not to say that one sh we should choose one over the other, or that we need to adopt one over the other, but it's a question of the relationship between them. So the first one I call the choosing controlling stance. And all mature human beings adopt this stance to some extent in their efforts to improve their lives in the world around them through controlling, transforming, and overcoming the given, or the given being just what exists. Uh, something that we don't choose that's sort of given to us uh, to, to operate within the, the world as we have it, so to speak. And I think this is important. I, so I, I think it's part of being human that we make choices, that we seek to transform the world, that we seek improvement. And so I'm not in any way denigrating this. I think it's, it has to have uh, an important role in any good human life. However, at the extreme, this stance gives expression to uh, a Promethean project of playing God by seeking mastery over the given world. So you often hear this language of, of playing God used, um, you know, I think in, in biomedical ethics, for instance, around discussions about genetic engineering. Sometimes you hear it in environmental ethics. Uh, it's, it's usually, you know, offered as, as a critique that you're, you're somehow, it's kind of a hubristic posture. It, it lacks uh, humility. Uh, that, it, you know, that it's a kind of stance of, of unlimited mastery over the world. Um, now, of course, Prometheus in, in, in the, Greek, uh, the Greek myth uh, is, a, is a god, is a titan god, but this has sort of become an image where um, Prometheus gives fire to human beings so that fire is a transforming agent, right? And so now they can cook, they can, you know, have light, they can, you know, have, have heat in the cold. So it's it's just, it's usually connected with especially in the in the modern period with a kind of scientific technological mindset that um, you know there's a uh, philosopher Ronald Dworkin who who described Promethean as as the patron saint of dangerous discoveries and, and the sort of scientific technological mindset we where we have to push on uh, you know to to always advance our understanding advance our control over the world so the posture is one that seeks in principle a kind of unlimited control over the world and really 
taking on on a godlike posture. I think you see something of this not not I mean in, in many different traditions. I mean I think uh, you can read, for instance, the biblical story of the Garden of Eden and uh, in, in much of Genesis as, as sort of warning about the dangers of, of, of assuming a godlike posture over the world. Uh, you, know, you see that in the Tower of Babel. Uh, I, I talk, I, I give a philosophical reading of the Garden of Eden story and, and the current book project on spiritual alienation. It's very interesting that they uh, you know, the eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is often interpreted as a fall, but I think it's also uh, Kant and Hegel and, and more recently uh, Leon Cass in his book, Reading Genesis, say it's not, simply, it, it's not simply a fall. It's also a rise into our moral spiritual self-consciousness, but it, it sort of speaks to, uh, you know, the, our situatedness between the beasts and the divine. And I think you see the same concern in, in Greek thought about uh, you know, our situatedness between the beasts, we shouldn't act like beasts, but there's also a danger of aspiring to the divine. Uh, now different Greek philosophers and Greek thinkers had different stances towards this. Uh, you know, Aristotle said we should be pro-immortal, we should seek to uh, immortalize ourselves as far as possible. Uh, Matt Walker has written a good book on, on these, these issues, uh, on, on Aristotle and contemplation. I, I recommend that book. Uh, but many of the Greeks had a concern about adopting this kind of godlike posture, seeing it as, as perhaps a kind of hubris. And of course, Aristotle did acknowledge where we are situated. You know, he's, he's, this is part of the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, where he's sort of torn between, okay, we're human, we have this divine-like element within us, and so, you know, how should we live out our humanity that's sort of in this in-between condition between the beast and the divine? Okay, so I think that that's part of the human condition, and we can go wrong insofar as we don't live that out appropriately. I'll come back to say why I think humility is the key limiting virtue precisely because it's about uh, our proper place. It, it acknowledges or is, it, it gets right our proper place in the scheme of things. Okay, so uh, the other stance I call the accepting appreciating stance. Uh, and this stance is at odds with the Promethean project. By accepting and appreciating a given, it imposes limits on the choosing controlling stance. Um, so I'm not suggesting that we just should just accept, you know, adopt the kind of quiet, quietest picture where we just accept everything as it is and, and sort of uh, don't do anything. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm going to be arguing, uh, but rather we need some way to properly, properly relate uh, these two stances. So there's a question here, how should we think about the relationship between the choosing controlling stance and the accepting appreciating stance. Okay. All right. So this image may be familiar to you if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is the, the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air. Um, so Jesus, uh, you know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount says, do not be anxious about anything, but be, uh, be as the, the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, not anxious about anything. Uh, but at the same time, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and these things shall be, shall be added unto you. But I think this, this image of um, uh, the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air is a kind of uh, accepting, appreciating stance where we, we have faith that we don't need to sort of grasp too much to, to get the things that we think we need. Uh, but we can trust in, in due course uh, that these things uh, shall be added unto us. Uh, but in any case, um, I, one, of my, one of the things I seek to argue in the book, and that I'm trying to uh, make the case for here as well, uh, is, is going back to this question of the relationship between the, the accepting, appreciating stance and the choosing, controlling stance. I think, and I argue, that uh, the accepting, appreciating stance needs to be understood as more fundamental uh, sometimes um, you see people who talk about, they have different ways of talking about the, these two basic stances, um, but they're basically getting at the, this, this idea. And sometimes what you see is people say, well, we need to balance them. We need a balance of choosing and controlling. And we need, you know, we also need some accepting, appreciating. So maybe it's just about getting enough of both in our lives, right? We need a little choosing. We need a little, we need a little accepting, appreciating. Um, and that, that seems on, on first blush plausible enough, but I actually think we have to see the accepting, appreciating stance as more fundamental. 
Uh, and so there's three reasons why I see this stance as more fundamental. First of all, we, we need to be properly responsive to what is of value in the world in order to know how to act, not to act. In other words, the accepting, appreciating stance should inform when and how we take up the choosing, controlling stance. Some of you um, may be familiar with Iris Murdoch's work uh, on attention, where she says, um, the moral life depends upon attention. Knowing how to act well when the time comes depends upon our habits of attention. And she cites the, uh, the uh, St. Paul and the Philippians, you know, whatsoever, you know, is noble, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is lovely, think upon these things, right? And so being able to act well in the world depends upon a, a contemplative stance towards the world. Uh, the Jesuits uh, like to talk of being contemplatives in action. They like the action a lot, uh, you know, uh, but it's, it's the, the idea is to be a contemplative where your, your life of contemplation should feed into uh, the life of action. So knowing how to act well uh, depends upon, uh, first of all, appreciating what's of value in the world, accepting it as good, appreciating it. And then we can begin to reflect upon how we should how we should live our lives. Okay, so that's that's the first point. The second is that given the limits of our existence, we need to recognize that a state of perfection will never be realized through our efforts. And so we need a way of living with and being at home in the world amidst imperfection, which means that we need a way of coming to see life in the world as good and worth affirming despite the ill. So one of the issues that I bring up uh, in the book is what I call the problem of cosmodicy. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the term theodicy. A theodicy is a justification of God's ways in the face of evil and suffering. So in the face of all the bad things that can happen, how do we justify God, why God would create such a world with evil and suffering? I think behind the problem of theodicy is, is the problem of cosmodicy. This is, in a, in a sense, the deeper problem. It's the problem shared by people, whether they believe in God or, you know, some other higher power or they're atheists or they're agnostics. Uh, we all have to come to terms with the problem of cosmodicy. So cosmodicy is, the ju is justifying life in the world, of the world, cosmos. Dicey uh, comes from the Greek for justice or, you know, the, the to defend the, the justice or the, the goodness of the world. And so the problem of cosmos is, can we affirm and, and uh, justify life in the world that's worth living in the face of evil and suffering, right? And so a religious person might have, you know, a theist might have, uh, you know, a way of saying, yes, we can come to affirm that, but they have their own special problem of, of theodicy. But cosmodicy, I see, is the more fundamental issue. Some of you may be familiar with Fyodor Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, where Ivan Karamazov says, it's not God that I, I don't accept, although, in fact, I think he is an atheist, but for the sake of argument, he accepts God, but he says, it's the world created by God that I don't accept, um, and so, um, so we, so that's really the challenge, you know, and, and Dostoevsky seeks to, to respond to that through the character Father Zosima and his two fundamental teachings that life is paradise and we're responsible to all for all, of course, a very, a very Christian perspective. But this issue of cosmodicy, I think, is, is uh, really fundamental. And part of what I, I, I think uh, this accepting, appreciating stance, it's, it's a matter of coming to an affirmation of life in the world is, is worthwhile in the face of imperfection, in the face of its limitations. So we need a way of living uh, with, uh, with our finitude, our creaturely finitude, uh, the imperfections of the world. It, you know, this, this is a, a hard balance to get right because we don't want to just accept everything as it is, but we're also not going to, part of my argument, especially in the, in the political limits chapter is, is uh, against a utopian perspective and endorsing what I call a politics of imperfection, but we need a way of living with imperfection. Not that we don't try to seek improvement, recognizing that we'll never achieve uh, uh, a utopian condition, which literally means a no place, it's nowhere except in the imagination. Uh, we need a way of living with the world as we have it, seeing it as, as meaningful uh, and worth affirming despite the ill. Okay, so that's, that's the second sort of point I wanna make about the accepting appreciating stance being more fundamental. Lastly, um, in important sense, our achievements are not complete without our appreciation of them. So as I said in, in the first point here that our appreciation or contemplation 
comes first in, in sort of the, the order of, of action, right? Uh, but in a, in a way, it also comes last, I want to argue. So if we think about going back to the biblical uh, um, account of creation, the first creation story, God, uh, God creates the world in six days and then completes his creation through appreciating where he contemplatively, contemplative, contemplatively, sorry about that, beholds it as very good and, uh, and rests on the seventh day. Uh, so it's interesting, this, the seventh, it's called the seventh day of creation. Uh, and what God does in the seventh day is rest and appreciate the creation. And so you see this in the practice of the Sabbath. In the practice of the Sabbath, uh, Jews and Christians imitate God in creation. Uh, the Sabbath completes our own work through restful appreciation of this work, as well as the world in which we live. So the, the book actually ends with a, a section. This is in, in the economics limits chapter, uh, ends with a reflection on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is a break from the work week, right? Uh, and sometimes we think of the Sabbath simply as a kind of like, uh, as, as a resting point. Uh, William James uh, spoke of a moral holiday. We take a moral holiday. It's just sort of a break from the real activity of life. When in fact, I think, uh, you know, for instance, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book, his great book on the Sabbath, says that the Sabbath is not a mere armistice, but rather it's, it's the telos of creation. It's, it's, it's really the completion of creation. It's, it's the fulfillment of it. So in contemplation, in contemplation of the world, and uh, of, of our own lives and our activity, we actually find a kind of fulfillment. And um, so this is a sense that, that contemplation in a way, or the Sabbath as a space for contemplation is the completion of, of our lives. It's, it's the telos of our lives. It's, it's the fulfillment. Now, of course, Christians believe that, you know, there's the beatific vision and the afterlife, uh, but you also see something of this in Aristotle. Uh, one of my favorite passages in all of Aristotle is in the Eudemian Ethics, Book One, Chapter Five, where he's asking, you know, responding to this cosmodicy issue, what is it good to have been born? Uh, and he says, you know, if if it were, if it were just about pleasure, then all the sort of things we go through, you know, we'd have to say no, it wasn't, right? And then he says, uh, citing Anaxagoras, an, an, an it says we're here to contemplate the, the order of the universe in the heavens, right? Um, that you know, the contemplation is is the fulfillment, and so. Even our own achievements themselves are not complete without our, our appreciation of them. Uh, and, and similarly, we, we can't be fully fulfilled without uh, taking in and beholding, appreciating uh, the beauty and splendor of, of the world around us. So, and if we believe in God as the ultimate source of that world, that, that ultimately culminates in, in contemplation of God, as it did for Aristotle as well. So, let me now turn, so we can kind of keep in mind those sort of, that, that sort of argument there, those sort of three reasons I give for uh, why the accepting and preaching stance is most fundamental. Now, the limiting virtues that I want to talk about, uh, they're, they're ways of getting this relation right between these two fundamental existential stances, the choosing controlling stance and the accepting appreciating stance. So Humility can be regarded as, as I say, the master limiting virtue. It ensures that we recognize and live out our proper place in the scheme of things. Uh, so that, again, that goes back to this point about, um, you know, that we're situated between the beasts and the vine. Uh, and that humility is the master limiting virtue because it ensures that we recognize our proper place. So we shouldn't see ourselves as mere, as mere beasts, non-rational animals, in other words. Um, but we also shouldn't see ourselves as, as divine. I, I mean, at least not fully, fully, you know, maybe we have an element of the divine. Maybe, maybe we're made in the image of God, but we're not God. And so humility gets that right. Now, some people think of humility as a kind of self-abasement. You see this, for instance, in David Hume, you know, humility is just a kind of self-hatred. Um, I think Aquinas gets this right. I'm not just saying this because Father James is here. Uh, but, uh, but I think he gets it right because he sees it as needing to be paired with magnanimity that, uh, you know, that humility and magnanimity both are, are crucial. Humility especially restrains us from, as, as Aquinas says, from aspiring to high things immoderately and um, magnanimity sort of raises us up so we don't sort of wallow, wallow in, you know, uh, self-pity or, you know, look, looking down on ourselves. So a kind of self-abasement is not 
uh, not appropriate. So I think humility has to be uh, has to be uh, uh, paired with what we might call proper pride, a sense of the dignity of of humanity of of what we what we can be and what we ought to be. But at the same time, there's improper pride, which is hubris, where we aspire to uh, to be gods uh, when in fact we're not. So. As a limiting virtue, uh, I say that it's especially concerned with reining in this this uh, tendency to play God, uh, or this what I call the sort of Promethean project of playing God, uh, which we see in, as I've already mentioned in this uh, scientific technological mindset. Although I think one of the most prominent Promethean figures in, in the modern world is Nietzsche, and I discuss Nietzsche in the book, and he's not so much uh, you know he doesn't have quite he's endorsing necessarily this scientific technological project that you see you know from you know Descartes and Bacon onwards to you know recent stuff on genetic engineering or, or, or gene editing uh, for him it's the project of playing God is is uh, a creative cultural project so you find you find Promethean projects that are sort of scientific uh, you know maybe emphasizing techne you know to use the Greek term and then you find those that are more you know emphasizing sort of poesis or creativity, uh, you know, remaking ourselves in a, in a creative way. So, you know, Nietzsche says, you know, you should make your, your lives a, a work of art, uh, that you sort of create yourself, um, that you, um, and, and this is how we can justify life is through, through the sort of projects of self-creation. Um, so, you know, sort of opposed to seeing ourselves as, as created or creatures, we, are, we become gods in creating ourselves uh, in the sort of uh, cultural process. So the virtue of humility recognizes against these postures. So I, I discussed both Nietzsche and uh, Dworkin, Dworkin's defense of playing God with regard to uh, genetic engineering, which expresses the scientific technological mindset, sort of, in, you know, attempts to defend playing God. Um, and one of the key arguments against that is just to defend the virtue of humility as, as a virtue that recognizes that some things must be accepted and appreciated as given and not subject to human control or manipulation. It properly acknowledges our dependency on others and on the natural world, as well as on values or, or goods not of our own making for living well and meaningfully as human beings. In fact, I don't think we can just create goodness out of nothing, you know, like ex nihilo. Uh, goodness is, you know, objective goodness is, you know, I mean, if it's not objective goodness, then it's just preferences, whatever you happen to prefer. Uh, but I, I think that doesn't sort of meet the, you know, the, the needs, so to speak, of the human heart for meaning. We want, we want to live our lives for something, something of, of value. And so humility is this posture of receptivity to something of value beyond ourselves. And it acknowledges our natural, personal, and moral limitations. And so, so it's really the, the key virtue because it's really about, in broad terms, recognizing our place within within the world within the scheme of things how how, how should we be uh within you know with regard to human existence the world uh things of value beyond ourselves and so for that reason i see it as uh the master limiting virtue so each of these we can get into discussing in more detail but i did just want to kind of provide you know give give a sense overall of these these six limiting virtues so with that in mind let me move on to uh, the second limiting virtue, which is reverence. I think another word for this is piety. Uh, reverence, maybe. So partly I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I think a lot of this fits within a religious framework or, um, you know, many different of the great religions would, would recognize these virtues. But it's, in the first instance, it's a, I'm appealing to a phenomenology, a kind of experience of the world, uh, what, what it is to see the world through this lens, which I think Someone could recognize whether they they see themselves as religious or not. I think in one sense, if you have uh, uh, you know the if you experience reverence, I mean that is a kind of I think many people would see it as a kind of religious emotion. So if we're just talking about the feeling of it, not the virtue. The virtue of it is, as I say, being uh, properly responsive through reverential attitudes of behavior to what is reverence worthy. For instance, human life, God, maybe the natural world. Uh, and, and seeing this as placing constraints in our will. Uh, so reverence, I think, is oftentimes, you know, maybe seen as within a religious context, uh, and we might see it in, in those terms. But I think anyone, insofar as they recognize something worthy of, of reverence, something that they regard as sacred, 
uh, can see that reverence, uh, you know, has an important place in human life. And we can regard it as a virtue insofar as there's a proper way of being responsive to the reverence worthy. So the virtue of reverence is concerned with being properly responsive. Now, if we think about piety, piety is oftentimes uh, concerned with the sources of human existence. Uh, you know, so for instance, there's, there's filial piety. Confucians oftentimes strongly emphasize uh, filial piety. Of course, in the biblical tradition, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother, placed directly after those duties towards God, or the duties towards your parents, and then duties towards your neighbor. Um, so a lot of, of traditional moral frameworks recognize, uh, you know, filial piety as having, having a central role. Uh, but also this religious piety towards God. People will talk about natural piety insofar as the natural world is a source of our lives. Uh, patriotism oftentimes takes, uh, takes, has an element of, of piety. If you just think about the, the term patriotism, it has to do with the father or the parent and a certain kind of, if you, if you ever read uh, Socrates' Crito, or sorry, Plato's Crito about Socrates and his relationship to, to Athens, uh, it has a real sense of, of filial piety. Again, the, the, there's potential worries in, in, in some of these cases, or maybe all of these cases. There's a way of getting it right. And so the virtue of reverence or the virtue of piety is getting it right with regard to the reverence worthy. And so all those things, I mean, the piety, oftentimes, are, you know, when people talk about piety, they're referring to something about the sources of life. But I think also we can have piety for life. It's, you know, that there's something sacred about life, human life, maybe in particular, and so when I talk about the virtue of reverence or piety, I'm talking about this mode of being properly responsive to the reverence worthy. And I think, I think these are, uh, I think this is closely connected with humility. Um, in fact, if you've read, if you've, if you've read, or if you go on to read Paul Woodruff's book on reverence, I think he actually conflates reverence and humility. He ends up saying that humility is a vice because he sees it as a kind of self-abasement. But he sees hubris as the opposite of reverence. When I think of hubris as the opposite of humility and irreverence as the opposite, obviously, in my view of, of reverence, but they are closely connected. There's, so there's something in the intuition there that places reverence and humility closely together. Um, it, because I think reverence, part of how we define our, our proper place in, in the world is, is through, uh, you know, which is the concern of humility is through reverence. It's through uh, showing reverence to what is uh, worthy of a special kind of regard. Um, and, and there can be gradations of this. And many, you know, I think we can think about respect as a kind of limiting virtue. Reverence, we might think of as a kind of heightened respect. So there are things that deserve a kind of heightened respect. And maybe, you know, there's some things that are most reverence worthy, or maybe even we say, you know, with regard to, to God, you know, if we believe in God, that God is worthy of worship. Right, which is a sort of, you know, the sort of most heightened form of, of reverence. So, um, so again, I see those two virtues, the virtues of humility and reverence as, as closely linked. Um, I, in, the ch in the second chapter, where I talk about moral limits. I talk about character form formation. I focus particularly on a, the Confucian account, um, you know, where, you know, begins from filial piety, but it extends outwards uh, in, in, you know, the, Confucians, Confucius uses this term Li, which has to do with ritual. I mean, it really can be seen as a kind of social propriety, or we might call certain uh, normative expectations around manners. Um, you know, some of you may, may be more familiar with, with Confucian thought than I am, but I think uh, there's something really important that's, that's, that's got here uh, in the sort of central role of a kind of using the language of, of Lee or ritual, ceremony, uh, you know, social propriety, which is really about a kind showing a kind of respect or reverence, uh, you know, for, for traditions, for fellow human beings. And I think that has a really important role in, in uh, character formation. And I, I'm interested in character formation as, you know, this idea of giving form to our desires. So we need to, to give form to our desires. And part of what Confucian Li does ritual is to give form to our desires. Um, I think uh, the the poet William Butler Yeats he, he's got this beautiful poem called "A Prayer for My Daughter." Where he says, "How button custom and ceremony are innocence and beauty born." I'll say it again: How button custom and ceremony 
our innocence and beauty born. It's really a kind of Confucian thought that it's through custom and in ceremony, through Li, through this cultivated reverential mode of being in the world that we, so innocence is not, this is a moral innocence, not a kind of animal innocence, but it's something uh, that's, it's cultivated. It has to be brought about. And so it comes about through a process of character formation. Okay, so again, all these things can be discussed more, but I'm giving you a broad picture. Let's turn to moderation. So this is an area, so another thing I focus on when I talk about character formation is of course the role of moderation, particularly for Aristotle. Moderation is a limiting virtue because it is concerned with avoiding vicious extremes. Uh, for Aristotle, it's kind of master virtue as well because all the virtues of character consist in realizing a proper mean between excess and deficiency in some feeling or action. One thing I forgot to mention when talking about reverence is that I think it's really important if we recognize, so I make a case for absolute prohibitions, which are the kind of ultimate moral limit on our action. I think in order to, to recognize that, I think we need uh, the virtue of reverence. So, so we won't properly recognize absolute prohibitions if we don't uh, have a place for the virtue of reverence. So for instance, we, we talk about the sanctity of human life. So the, the virtue of reverence is properly responsive to the sanctity of life that we're not to intentionally take uh, an innocent human life. Without that virtue, we won't, be, we won't be properly responsive to that. So again, that's another way without the limiting virtues, it leads to a kind of dehumanization. So Aristotle says that there are some actions, this goes back to the point about moderation, there are some actions for which there's not, uh, there's not a proper mean, like there's not the proper amount of like killing innocent people. He says murder doesn't have a mean. Uh, you know, uh, adultery, there's not like the right amount of adultery, like it's, it's always ruled out. So Aristotle, I think, recognizes absolute prohibitions, although he doesn't really, you know, um, get too far into like, what's the basis of these, but I, I think it is a, a sense of, of something, something sacred. We can kind of leave that aside for now, but we can come back to it uh, in discussion if we want to. Um, so moderation, um, so I'm thinking about moderation as sort of a broader category so sometimes people use moderation and temperance uh, as, as interchangeable. I think of temperance as a specific form of moderation, because one thing I talk about in the, the chapter on political limits is uh, political moderation. So I think of moderation is a more general category that has to do with avoiding extremes. Um, so temperance has to do with, uh, you know, uh, our animal appetites, feelings of uh, bodily, bodily pleasure. And so temperance has a really important role in character formation because we first of all need to be properly related to our appetites. So it, it ensures that we aren't enslaved to our animal appetites and therefore it makes us receptive to what is ennobling of our humanity. So uh, it plays a sort of uh, crucial role as, as we're beginning to form our desires. We, we have to be able to step back from our desires and ask what in fact is good for us to desire. And so temperance, uh, again, has this crucial uh, formative role. Uh, it gives shape or form to our desires uh, by making us receptive to what is, in fact, noble. So we desire uh, pleasures in, in the right sort of way. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, we might think about sexual desire here. So there's sexual desire that's just mere lust, right, where it's just like an animal appetite. But then, the, you know, there's the distinctively human form of sexual desire, which is romantic love, uh, which has, has an ennobling, uh, more humanly fulfilling aspect to it. So temperance uh, in the form of chastity uh, plays, plays a crucial role in ennobling our humanity. In the same way with food, um, uh, I mentioned Leon Cass earlier in his book on Genesis. He also wrote a book called The Hungry Soul, in which he looked at uh, eating. I think the, the subtitle is called Eating and the Perfecting of Our Nature. Uh, and he talks about how human beings uh, dignify, you know, their, their eating. So they, we don't just feed like non-human animals do, but we eat, we feast, uh, or we dine, we feast, and, you know, we sit around a table and we have manners and it's sort of ennobling of this basic animal activity. So like the Confucian idea of, of Lee or cultural ritual, uh, you know, with reverence, I think, uh, you know, Aristotle has focus on on uh, moderation or temperance in particular uh, has a sort of ennobling aspect to our humanity. I also talk about, so I, I mentioned that I talk about uh, uh, political moderation. It doesn't seem to be a terribly popular 
virtue today in, in our political lives. Um, <laughs> so increasingly polarized, especially in the United States. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the United States, I don't know. I don't want to make claims about who's the most polarized, but uh, it just, it seems like we're, we have these growing chasms. And so political moderation is really, an, you know, uh, attempt to avoid extremes, extremism and, and polarization to find common ground. It's part of what I call a politics of imperfection uh, where, you know, you know, we try to find some, some basis uh, to, to cooperate together. It's often manifested in an ethic of dialogue, trying to understand where other people are coming from. Doesn't necessarily mean you don't have lines you draw or things that you just think are wrong, uh, but it, it does try to avoid uh, seeing seeing the world in, in terms of you know the forces of light and the forces of darkness. That you're on the side of the light and your political opponents are on, are just completely forces of darkness and so forth. And it's particularly concerned with avoiding the worst evils. Uh, I think um, this is defended in the Federalist Papers. Uh, which were defending the U.S. Constitution. Many ways that the U.S. Constitution was defended on on principles of moderation that we're not going to achieve some utopian condition. How do we deal with faction? We need checks and balances in place to to help mitigate some of these these faction this factional conflict. Uh, again, these are all things we can come back to, but I I do defend political moderation uh, as as important for uh, recognizing appropriate political limits. All right. So let's now move on to contentment. So we have three, three virtues left here and then we'll, we'll turn to discussion. So uh, some of you may be familiar with this image. This is, from, uh, this is from the story from the Grimm's brothers, the fisherman and his wife. This is where uh, the, this fisherman uh, catches this magic talking fish uh, and he goes back and tells his wife about it. And she's, not, uh, she's like, well, you found a magic fish. Why didn't you ask, ask for something? And so she tells him to go back and she's, you know, she says she wants, they live in a, a, a small little hut. The, the German for it, I think is piss pot. Um, so it's not a very nice thing. So they want, you know, understandable. They want a nice little cottage. And so they get that. She, uh, she's happy for a little bit. And then she's like, well, you know, really I'd want, you know, a castle. And then, you know, it goes on and on until she, you know, wants, wants to be emperor, wants to be pope. Really, she ultimately wants to be God. She, she's sort of upset that the sun and moon do, uh, uh, do not uh, rise and fall at her command. And uh, ultimately, she, she ends up, when, when, when she asks to be God, uh, the, the magic talking fish uh, basically says, go back and you'll, you know, uh, you'll have, uh, you'll, you'll see she has what she's asked for. And really, I mean, there's an interesting part of that story where it's a question of, uh, is this uh, a godlike condition is, is contentment, right? Uh, maybe that, maybe that's what would have, would have been the best thing uh, to begin with. Although I think there is, there's this question of, I mean, I think this story nicely raises um, this issue because it's not clear that once you content with totally squalid conditions, right? There's a place for wanting to seek a kind of improvement. Um, but there's also a pl place, you know, especially I talk about this in the last chapter on economic limits, where, uh, you know, uh, a capitalistic culture encourages us to want more and more, to, to think that there's never enough. And so we should always be seeking to get more and more. And so I see the virtue of contentment, as, as I say, it's the virtue of knowing when enough is enough, of not wanting more than is needed for a good life. Of course, it's going to take prudence to know, you know, what is enough, but um, but it at least it sets the sights on. We, we want to understand what it, it. The goal is not to have more and more, right? But the goal is to help have a, a, a sufficient amount, right? Enough to to live well, right? Aristotle talks about this when he talks about, uh, you know, um, economics versus sort of the art of acquisition. Economics, um, the, the term. Koinomia, uh, you know, has it really it means something like household management, um, uh, a kind of uh, focus on the home, something that's that's self, you know, seeking the necessary material resources for living a good life. And he says those people who just seek to acquire more and more, uh, they're not serious about living well, right? Uh, because they don't know that the good life cannot be found in having more and more. But I think at, 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 a, at, a, at a broader level, so contentment is not just focused on, on the economic domain, but uh, it goes back to that point that we need a way of living with imperfection. 
Uh, so contentment, the virtue of contentment does not deny that we ought in many ways to seek improvement, but it acknowledges that we need to find a way to be at home in the, in the world amidst imperfection. And so it requires a, a, that we cultivate a grateful or appreciate, appreciative orientation towards the world. So we don't begin by just pointing out all the faults and, and you know, uh, uh, seeking to be disconnected with everything, but rather we begin by counting our blessings, right? Um, now we may st still need to seek improvement, but contentment is more about uh, um, a disposition or an orientation. Uh, it's a kind of, um, uh, Cheshire Calhoun has, has an essay called On Being Content with Imperfection, when she talks about having a certain expectation frame, right? That uh, where it's, it's a kind of, uh, she, she describes uh, contentment as a virtue of appreciation. It's something, it's, it's focused on first appreciating. And we may come to think that we don't have enough and to go back to the story of uh, the Brim's go, Brim's, uh, Brother Grimm's fairy tale, uh, the fisherman and his wife, we may think, no, you know, it's you know, uh, a squalid hut. That's, it's not really, that's not sufficient. Maybe, you know, it's right for people to have adequate housing. We have some sense of what adequate housing would be. And so it's not opposed to improvement, but it, it first seeks to find the good. So contentment, I, I see as a virtue that seek, first seeks to find the good uh, and then and then sort of work out what would be enough. So uh, this also plays out then in uh, my, my account of a politics of imperfection in chapter three. And I defend there a sufficientarian account of distributive justice, uh, where what's important is not that everyone has the same, but that everyone has enough. So most common accounts of, of distributive justice are egalitarian in some form. Uh, very prominent view has been what's called luck egalitarianism, where differences of, of wealth and income that result from choice maybe are all right, but differences that result from your, your, your different circumstances, whether your social circumstances or natural circumstances have to be readjusted. Uh, you know, there needs to be some redistribution. And in those cases, uh, distribution, we should try to equalize as far as possible. Um, I, I think this is a, a problematic mindset towards the given world. You know, we're always constantly comparing uh, our status to someone else's. Uh, and what we should really be concerned with is that people have enough, right? And so I think a lot of the plausibility of, you know, for instance, a luck egalitarian account is not that like it's it's so important that everyone has the same. Like it doesn't seem to be that important that one person has like, you know, one rich person is slightly more rich than another person. Uh, what seems to matter is that people have enough. In other words, poverty matters most. And so it's important that people have enough to live well. Now, I, I do think economic equality is important. Uh, I mean, not what I meant to say is economic inequality is important because I think if there's too much of a divide, then I think that can cause problems. It causes problems in, in a democratic society where more people have, can have more power because of the influence of wealth. So that, it's not to say that inequality is not problematic at all, but in terms of justice, our primary focus should be on ensuring that people have enough to live well. So you can see how the virtue of contentment also uh, is, is connected to that account of distributive justice. Um, okay, I've already discussed greed. I think we, uh, so I seek to recover in, in that last chapter on economic limits, uh, this idea of Aristotle's idea of uh, koinomia, which I call home economics, which is some, you know, uh, it, it's somewhat redundant if you, if you think about Aristotle's term Economia is uh, household management. It really means like a, a kind of home economics. So it's really putting the home back, back in economics. And it's, it's an attempt to see um, economics should be about fostering uh, uh, a sense of uh, community and, and sense of home in the world. And so um, that, that's how our economic life should be oriented. I think so much of, of um, modern life is centered around, while we have these egalitarian ideals, it's also very sort of status driven. We're always seeking whether it's higher economic or social status uh, and you're never content. Uh, but if you're never content, then in a sense, you're gonna be always uh, alienated from, from your existence because you're always seeking that, that next best thing. And so we need to recognize ties that bind. Uh, I'll get back to this when I talk about loyalty. Um, the, the Benedictines have this, uh, this vow of stability, which I think is, is, is worth reflecting upon, especially in our, our modern condition that's, uh, especially for like high, high status elites uh, is very mobile. It's very, you know, focused on always achieving the next best thing. Uh, thinking about 
actually being rooted in a place, uh, you know, the importance of that. Uh, I think we don't live well without being rooted. I think a rootedness is, is a human need, a sense of being at home in the world. Uh, and a lot of the sort of uh, issues around depression today and loneliness, I think, connected to are connected to a modern sense of, of rootlessness. And so, again, that, that's a big claim. We can come back and talk about it more. It'll come out more as, as we look at, especially the virtue of loyalty. Before getting there, I want to talk about neighborliness. So uh, two more slides left here. So these last two limiting virtues are really, in some sense, uh, limits on what we might think of what morality can demand of us. Um, a lot of modern moral philosophies uh, endorse, uh, you know, an impartialist ethic. Um, you know, whether it's Kant, who says, you know, we have to will what can become a universal law for all human beings, or utilitarianism says we should always be seeking at least in one version of it, act utilitarianism, that we should seek always to maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number, or at least we should follow those rules that would maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number. And so they're universal, they're impartialistic, uh, which, which contrasts, you know, uh, very much with ancient moral philosophies. Aristotle spent more time on the topic of friendship in the Nicomachean ethics than the other topic. And of course, that includes for Aristotle, uh, friendship or philia uh, includes, um, you know, uh, our love and relationships with family, um, uh, as, as well as with what we would normally think of as friends, could also include civic friendship. But also, I, I mentioned earlier, you think about Confucian ethics that starts with uh, with uh, filial piety with relation to parents, siblings, uh, grandparents, and previous generations. So there's much more of an emphasis on on um, on prox uh, nearness or proximity. Uh, think about uh, Mencius, for instance, says that um, the world would be at peace if everyone treated kin as kin. You know, people seek seek the good in what is what is far, but we should seek it in what's near. And so neighborliness, um, the virtue of neighborliness is really, um, I mean, I, I'm particularly thinking of the, the Jewish and Christian teachings on neighborliness, uh, perhaps best exemplified in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we see depicted in this picture. Um, neighborliness is a form of human solidarity that recognizes, as I put it, the moral significance of proximity. Uh, so it, it Famously, Peter Singer, some of you may be familiar with Peter Singer's work, uh, he says, you know, proximity is morally irrelevant. He gives a sort of famous example of going by a pond and there's a child drowning. Should you wait in and, and you know, even, it's gonna, even if it's going to ruin your clothes, should you wait in, wait in and give this person? I think everyone says, yes, of course. But he, so he, he goes on to argue, well, then we should, you know, uh, think seriously about our obligations to people around the, the globe who are, who are in famine. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot that's right, you know, that we should have some concern, but, but if we're always, you know, acting for the greatest happiness, uh, then we sort of come into some of the, the objections that are often raised against utilitarianism, that it's, uh, you know, that it's self-alienating in a way, that it's self-mutilating, that we, we can't have our own projects or things that, we, that give our lives meaning, uh, that we always have to be living for the greatest happiness. Um, but beyond that, I, I think it, it's not, a lot of these modern moral theories are insufficiently attentive to the concrete of the moral life. That in fact, our, our sense of the dignity of human beings begins from these face-to-face -face encounters. Um, so wh while I think this has been overlooked in, in modern moral theories, such as utilitarianism, Kantianism, it's cer certainly there in our, in our older cultural traditions, uh, in the West, particularly in, in the biblical teachings around the love of neighbor. I think you see it, as I said, in Confucian ethics. Um, as we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor whom we are to love is not just someone who lives nearby and who is part of our community, but anyone, including a stranger that we encounter face to face. So in one sense, it's, it's, it's universal. It, it extends to all humanity. But the neighbor is the one who's, who's nigh, who's near, right? And so it, it focuses on uh, concrete humanity rather than abstract humanity. Uh, and this should inform how we think about our duties of assistance. So, I mean, there's always this danger that in, in loving human beings in general and abstractly that we'll love no one in particular. Uh, Dickens had in, in, um, uh, in Bleak House has this character, Mrs. Jellyby, who describes as having telescopic eyes, who is always looking to far off causes but neglects her own children, 
right? Uh, you know, uh, we can think of a number of, of these sort of instances where people find it easier to love human beings in general than to love people in particular. In fact, one character in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov says, I marvel at myself, the more I love human beings in general, the more I dislike people in particular. <laughs> that we can have these sort of high-minded ideals Maybe we're serving the cause of humanity, but we can't love the, the person right in front of us because the fact is human beings are imperfect and we ourselves are imperfect. And it's, it's uh, not always easy to, uh, to care and love for the people around us. Uh, so the proof is really in the pudding. So the virtue of neighborliness uh, requires us to focus on, uh, as G.K. Chesterton put it, the sample of humanity that's actually given to us, uh, the person who's there in our lives. He says this is a much more uh, a serious occupation than sort of a general love of humanity, which, you know, you know, we could kind of choose however we're going to fulfill that and may not have to love anyone in particular. I also developed this idea of neighborliness as, you know, with, within uh, a, a political uh, outlook where um, I, I do defend patriotism as a kind of loyalty to our, our fellow citizens, the people whom we share in a place with. Um, again, I think, I think, neighborliness recognizes human dignity in the concrete and so it should naturally extend beyond that um but it gives a kind of priority or focus to to proximity to the person who's who's there before us so and then the last limiting virtue then is loyalty so when we love and care for those who are there in our lives we will form identity constituting bonds of attachment with some of these particular people we will come to recognize demands of loyalty to them that sustain the good of the relationship and which give grateful recognition to the goods we have received from them. Um, so loyalty is, I see is, is the, is particularly uh, concerned with proper partiality. It's, it's, it's a virtue that's concerned with getting that right. And it places limits on the extent of our attachments and how far we can be expected to go in pursuing impartial concern. It involves binding attachment that is maintained through thick and thin. Aristotle famously said, a friend to all is a friend to none. We can't, as it were, be, be friends with everyone, although maybe in the Facebook, Twitter age, we, you know, we, we, some people might aspire to it. But people are, people are not less lonely in the age of social media. They're, in fact, more lonely uh, because we do need these ties that bind, these, uh, you know, that are maintained, as I say, through thick and thin. Um, and so part of the point, as I said, about loyalty is that it just gives recognition to the, the good of the relationship and recognizing that particular person and the relationship we formed with them, uh, we recognize that we have, we have demands of loyalty to them. Now, there are dangers, of course, uh, with loyalty that we could justify bad things in the name of loyalty. So uh, there's the virtue, there's virtuous loyalty, and then there's vicious loyalty. And I think going back to patriotism, I think you can see that as a specific kind of loyalty. And we can say that there are improper forms of patriotism, and there are proper forms. There are, uh, there's proper love of country, and there's forms that uh, you know, that are improper. To, to cite Chesterton again, he says that um, the person who says my, my country right or wrong is like someone saying my mother drunk or sober. Uh, he says it's not like you'd be in just a state of indifference if your mother took to drink, uh, but you would try to help her out. So patriotism is a love of country uh, that seeks the good for one's country. And it also is not necessarily, it, it shouldn't be opposed especially if we recognize, uh, you know, reverence is another limiting virtue concern with human dignity. Uh, it's not opposed to that, but it says we, it's important to have uh, proper partiality. It makes important uh, certain goods in human life from family to friendship, uh, you know, to uh, being a fellow citizen, sharing in a common political project, living together under common laws, uh, giving to one's country, um, all those things are an important part of being human. It also contributes to our belonging. Uh, there's another kind of loyalty, just, just to, to end on, on this point, which this goes brings us back to the discussion of the existential stances. And I call this loyalty to the given. So it recognizes that the given world demands, uh, makes demands upon us for loyalty, and we can fail to be properly responsive to existing value by refusing to belong to the given world. Uh, this loyalty gives uh, uh, this loyalty to the given provides a wider context in which more particular loyalties find their proper place. So I mean, this again brings us back to that that stance. I mean, um, of how we relate to the world. Should we, you know, should we reject it? Should we sort of say, no, I want a different world? 
uh, or should we first seek to attend to the good that is in the world? Uh, and when we do that, we find that it, it makes certain demands upon us to, to belong to it. Um, and so, uh, again, I think this is important for, for becoming at home in the world rather than alienated from it. Uh, we can't live well in a state of alienation. And so we have to have to find a way to, to be at peace with the world, to be at peace with imperfection. So, again, this is part of the accepting, appreciating stance that enables us to, uh, you know, in the face of imperfection, while we seek improvement, we also need to find a way to be at peace with it, to be at home in it. Uh, and so, again, it brings us back to that, that issue of cosmodicy. Can we find the world worthwhile, worth, worth living in? Um, and so, again, I think when we engage in a kind of appreciative uh, posture towards the world, uh, we rightly see it as demanding a kind of loyalty of us. 